Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Dan. This is the first episode in a very important series of cardiovascular prevention. It is no secret that cardiovascular disease is the number one killer worldwide. The total impact on humanity is just staggering. A focus on prevention of cardiovascular disease is an impetus for every cardio nerd. In this episode, Amit, Kareen, Heather, and I walk through an illustrative case discussion and review our two plus four paradigm of cardiovascular prevention two fundamental principles of management, and four steps in risk stratification. And hey everyone, it's Amit. We are truly honored to be producing this series in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. See the link on the episode description to get onto their website. It's an incredible resource for learning, networking, and promoting the ideals of cardiovascular prevention. And remember everyone, we are an independent educational platform brought to you by cardio nerds who simply love cardiology and teaching. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The hero of this episode, i.e. our patient, gave us full consent to discuss the details of his journey, and we thank him so much for teaching all of us. And now, a message from Dr. Amit Kara, the president of the ASPC. <laughs> Hi, this is Amit Kara. I'm president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and professor of medicine, director of preventive cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I want to first thank the Cardio Nerds podcast. What an amazing job these folks do and really thankful that they've elected to do this prevention series. Prevention is so important and so fundamental to all that we do in cardiovascular medicine. And at the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, we're delighted to co-sponsor this series to really promote what they do, to share with all of you about the wonderful world of prevention and all the great experts that they're going to bring on these podcasts. By way of a slight plug, we also want to tell you about the upcoming ASPC Congress. This is, uh, like all others, a virtual Congress now, since we no longer can do face-to-face this is happening on Saturday and Sunday, July 25th and 26th. It's free for anyone to register. We strongly want to get trainees to register so they can learn more about the field of prevention and hear from some experts in the field. So we hope that many of you participate in that. And most importantly, we hope you get a lot out of this series. And if anybody wants to learn more about prevention, please reach out to myself or any one of these excellent speakers that they have coming up. We're all pretty passionate about prevention, and we certainly want to help others learn about it too. Dan, Kareem, huge congratulations on completing your general cardiology fellowships. What an incredible accomplishment. On that note, we cardio nerds want to offer our deepest congrats to every 2020 graduate out there. Not being able to celebrate with the usual fanfare in no way diminishes your accomplishments. Truly, cheers to you all. Heather, I'll definitely raise a toast to that. Congrats, Dan, Kareem, and all of you other grads out there. Thanks, Heather and Ahmed. I'm so excited to dive into Advanced Heart Failure Fellowship in 2021 and definitely looking forward to this upcoming research year. On that note, for all of our listeners rising to new and exciting roles this July, congratulations. You can do this. Your stepping into these new roles is especially poignant during these times of special need in the COVID era. While you work hard taking care of others, don't forget to take care of yourself. Speaking of self-care and sleep, Dan, how was your first STEMI call? 
Oh my gosh, guys, uh, it was exhilarating. But at the same time, it taught me a lot about what we're dealing with in cardiology. And I can't believe I'm finally an interventional cardiology fellow. The journey to get here has been legit amazing. And I'm so thankful to my clinical and research mentors, co-fellows, and amazing cardio nerds for all the support. I've been fortunate enough to be involved in several percutaneous interventions for MI over the last couple days, but I know that every angiographically beautiful artery at the end of the case means that there is a patient who needs support in terms of a holistic approach to tertiary prevention strategies. Dan, as a cath nerd myself, I've often felt similarly. You know, cardiovascular disease is absolutely the number one killer globally, and it claimed the lives of nearly 18 million souls in 2017 alone. The impact on society in terms of well-being, productivity, and economics is just unfathomable. Unfortunately, it's on the rise, especially with the aging population and the obesity epidemic. The worldwide annual mortality increased by over 20% from 2007 to 2017, and the prevalence increased by almost 30% in the same time period, so we can definitely do better. Make no mistake, friends, cardiovascular disease is one of our worst pandemics, and we need to be all in to address this one. Those numbers are sobering and really mortifying. By the time a patient has a deadly event from cardiovascular disease, there have probably been many missed opportunities. We can definitely do better earlier. In other words, I'd love for Dan to sleep through all his STEMI calls without any interruptions. Same page for sure, Heather. In fact, we had the opportunity to record and interview the great Dr. Leslie Cho, who is both an interventional and a preventative cardiologist. Nerds, check out your feeds in the upcoming weeks. Wink, wink. Let's take this opportunity to define some terms with regards to primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. By the time a patient makes his or her way onto our cath table, assuming obstructive coronary artery disease is found and addressed, we are dealing with tertiary prevention, i.e. treatment of manifest disease with the goals of slowing or stopping disease progression. In contrast, secondary prevention is identifying disease in very early stages before signs and symptoms to prevent clinical disease and bad outcomes, like when we get abdominal ultrasounds to screen for abdominal aortic aneurysms in men ages 65 to 75 with a history of smoking. The disease is there, but it's just early and still subclinical. Secondary prevention is certainly better than tertiary prevention, but we can still do better with primary prevention, which is preventing the onset of disease in the first place. We do this by reducing risk factors, like counseling a patient to stop smoking so they don't get that AAA in the first place. But guys, the real holy grail of prevention, rather the holy grail of all medicine, is primordial prevention, which is preventing even the risk factors from developing in the first place. Counseling a patient to stop smoking is essential, but isn't it better to prevent people from smoking to begin with? And this really gets us into the importance of population health, because all of these preventative strategies require collaboration among healthcare workers, public health officials, policymakers, and insurers. Something I certainly appreciate more now that I've completed my first year of a master's at the Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. As physicians, it is our duty to emphasize every stage of prevention for every patient at every available opportunity. Friends, I'm absolutely loving this discussion. Without a doubt, the best and most effective way to address the staggering burden of cardiovascular disease is prevention, prevention, and prevention. So let's review our hashtag CardioNerds 2 plus 4 preventive paradigm, two principles of management, and four steps of risk stratification. I described this approach in a recent review I wrote with Dr. Leslie Cho, one of our fabulous pulse check experts. C. 
see the link in the episode description. Without further ado, the two principles of management are, number one, emphasize healthy lifestyle for everyone regardless of risk. And number two, escalate preventive measures with increasing risk because the greater the risk, the more effective these measures are. Amit, so well put. Step one, a focus on positive, if you will. Everyone would agree that a healthy lifestyle is something that can be applied to everyone. Step two, on the other hand, the escalation of prevention measures is something that must be tailored to the patient sitting across from you. If you have a 25-year-old, a 45-year-old, or a 95-year-old patient, exercise and good diet will be advised to them all. However, you're not going to be putting all of these patients on aspirin, high-intensity statins, because this will lead to more harm than good. So it is crucial that before you embark on step two, a legit risk stratification must be done. Legit risk stratification can be nuanced, so we have to break it down into four steps of risk stratification that can start broad and get down to the nitty-gritty to customize each approach to your patient. So let's go over those four things right now. First, we start with a qualitative risk approximation. Identify risk factors and start counseling and education. Every patient is different, and risk prevention is not something that we can just eyeball the patient when they walk in the door. Second, we step it up to quantitative risk estimation, where we use a validated model to quantify a patient's future risk of cardiovascular disease. This will help put our patient into different buckets of risk, low, borderline, intermediate, and high risk. Third, if their risk estimate is in the middle ground, then we want to further personalize risk stratification using risk-enhancing factors that may not be included or captured in the traditional risk-calculating estimators. And finally, number four, if the path still remains unclear after this, consider getting a coronary artery calcium score to look for subclinical disease. We will heavily delve into coronary calcium studies with a world-leading expert, Dr. Mike Blaha, in an episode coming your way. I love this 2 plus 4 framework. So we emphasize a healthy lifestyle for everyone because we want everyone to be healthy and step up additional preventive measures like statin therapy, blood pressure management, maybe aspirin use based on their risk of future disease. We estimate risk using a four-part stepwise approach. That's perfect. But remember, one size does not fit all. People have different values, perspectives, and goals. So throughout this two plus four approach, we have to partner with our patients in a shared decision-making manner in order to guide management. Education and counseling are a must every step of the way. This is all very helpful, but friends, let's get more concrete with an illustrative case. We can follow our patients' health over years to demonstrate how to practice what we preach. The year is 2004. Mark Zuckerberg founded Facebook, Cassini becomes the first spacecraft to orbit Saturn, and President Bill Clinton undergoes a four-vessel cabbage. This was also the year that our dear patient K.A., a vibrant 46-year-old man, presents to the clinic with sharp right lower back pain. He's found to have a kidney stone and is effectively managed with IV fluids and pain meds. He has no past medical or surgical history and takes no medications. He has never smoked tobacco, drinks alcohol rarely, and denies illicit drug use. He was born in Gujarat, India. He is married with one healthy child and works as a hospital nuclear lab manager. He also owns a thriving motel. His family history is notable for premature coronary artery disease with his father and two brothers being affected by age 52 to 55 years. Well, I'm glad his back pain got better. 
From our discussion earlier, we should take every opportunity to promote cardiovascular disease prevention, even during acute visits like this. After all, healthy people tend not to see their doctors very often, so we really should make every encounter count. Our first principle of preventative management is to emphasize a healthy lifestyle for everyone, regardless of risk. In an ideal world, I would definitely want to counsel him on this during this visit. And I couldn't agree more, Heather. The AHA's Life Simple 7 is an easy checklist to help people improve their lifestyle. And the list goes like this. Number one, manage blood pressure. Two, control cholesterol. Three, reduce blood sugar. Four, get active. Five, eat better. Six, lose weight. And finally, seven, stop smoking. Check, 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 and check. The second principle of prevention management is to escalate preventive measures with increasing estimated risk. The higher the risk, the more effective these measures. So this gets us to the four steps of risk stratification that we mentioned earlier. Let's get practical and start with step number one, our qualitative risk approximation, where we identify major risk factors and start counseling and education. In an upcoming interview that we will air shortly, we talked to Master of Prevention, Dr. Roger Blumenthal, and Spitfire several cases away. And you could just see how his mind works, honing in on these qualitative risk assessments as we go along. Kareen, tell us what we need to know about how to become an efficient qualitative risk assessing beast. A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. To get a sense of our patient's future risk of a major ASCVD event, our first step is to screen for major risk factors. We know from the InterHeart study that nine risk factors account for 90% of the population attributable risk of an MI. And those are smoking, dyslipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, abdominal obesity, psychosocial factors, daily consumption of fruits and vegetables, regular alcohol consumption, and regular physical activity. Five of these risk factors account for half of CVD mortality in the U.S., and all of them are modifiable, something that I am definitely excited about as a budding epidemiologist. Those five risk factors are hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, obesity, and smoking. There are guidelines for when and how often to screen for each of these. Generally, we should consider screening for major risk factors every four to six years. Suffice it to say that each of these is a silent killer, and you won't know if a patient has them without specifically screening for them. You don't want to wait until it's too late. That's absolutely right, Corrine. All of these are really important to pay attention to every time we see a patient. Let's start with a few notes on tobacco use. We should always make it a point to reinforce not smoking for our non-smokers and to reiterate smoking sensation for our smokers. But first, we need to dig a little bit deeper. Both smoking and smokeless tobacco increase the risk for ASCVD and all-cause mortality. Importantly, secondhand smoke is also a critical risk factor. Think about it. The lungs and arteries don't care whose mouth the cigarette was in, right? Also, the unfortunate trend of e-cigarettes and vaping is highly concerning and likely have adverse cardiovascular and pulmonary outcomes as well. We do know that there are increased reports of arrhythmia and hypertension related to vaping. Honestly, the whole tobacco industry is a travesty. One third of coronary heart disease deaths are attributable to smoking and exposure to secondhand smoke. We just need to do better as a society. At the patient level, counseling, education, and motivational interviewing are key and should be activated at every available opportunity. But more than that, pharmacotherapy can be very useful for some people, including nicotine replacement, varenicline, and bupropion. Referral to a specialist may be helpful for some people. 
On a population scale, though, public awareness, target policy, and insurance-based incentives are all gravely needed, which is why I'm thankful that cardiologists like Kareem are dedicated themselves to epidemiology on a broader scale as well. These are all such great points to summarize so far. Every visit is an opportunity to address cardiovascular prevention. After all, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer. We do this by following our two principles of preventative management. One, promote healthy lifestyle on everyone, and two, escalate preventative management with increasing risk. We have four steps in estimating this risk, beginning with the first, screening for major risk factors to start the counseling and education. Well summarized, Heather. Let's get back to our patient. The year is now 2008. America elects its first black president. Google launches the Chrome web browser and Android operating system. And there is a global financial crisis. 2008 is also the year that K.A., now 50 years old, comes to the clinic with atypical, non-exertional chest discomfort. But given his extensive family history, he undergoes a treadmill echocardiogram, which is negative for ischemia at 97% predicted maximal heart rate. He achieves 10 METs. His lipid panel shows a total cholesterol of 199, triglycerides of 114, HDL 42, and LDL 134. His blood pressure during that visit is 120 over 70. We will get into risk stratification for obstructive coronary artery disease in a future discussion, but thankfully his stress test was negative. The fact that we are even considering stress testing in this patient lets us know that this is a great opportunity to properly stratify his future risk to guide preventive management. Before we do that, I should emphasize that we only do this for primary prevention. Patients who already have known ASCVD are high risk by default and need aggressive management regardless. With that, let's walk through the four steps of risk stratification. Step one in risk stratification is to identify major risk factors. Thankfully, he doesn't seem to have any of the major risk factors at this point. It's a good thing we counseled him on a healthy lifestyle back in 2004, and I would certainly reiterate that now. Step two is to quantify 10-year ASCVD risk using a validated prediction model. We should use the model that best reflects our patient's demographic. In America, the recommended model is the ACC-AHA pooled cohort equation described in 2013. There are other models for different places like SCORE-CVD in most of Europe, JBS3 in the UK, and China-PAR in China. Generally speaking, in America, we should use the pooled cohort equation to quantify risk in individuals from 40 to 75 years of age, without diabetes, and with LDL cholesterols ranging from 70 to 190 milligrams per deciliter. This is because those with diabetes or an LDL over 190 are at higher risk to begin with and will warrant statin therapy a priori. So in our patient who is in America, has an age between 40 and 75, LDL between 70 and 190, and doesn't have diabetes, we can open up the risk calculator and plug in the following variables. Race, sex, age, total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, systolic blood pressure, antihypertensive medication use, diabetes status, and smoking status. This will give us an estimated 10-year risk of a major adverse cardiovascular event, or MACE, which will fall into one of four risk categories. The first, low risk, less than 5%, borderline risk at 5 to 7.5%, 
intermediate risk, 7.5% to 20%, or high risk, greater than or equal to 20%. Okay, let me plug that in. Age 50, yada, yada, yada. Okay. His predicted 10-year ASCVD risk using the pooled cohort equation, which won't be described for another seven years, is 3.2%. He is in the low-risk category. Correcto mundo. At 3.2%, our patient has low 10-year risk. But let's review some important caveats to using the pooled cohort equation that explain why we need four steps to risk stratification instead of just qualitative and quantitative steps that we executed so seamlessly. To review the caveats, number one, the pooled cohort equation derivation cohorts did not have an ethnically diverse background and certainly didn't have an ample representation of South Asians who are at a particularly high risk, which is going to be relevant for our patient who's from India. The MESA cohort was more diverse. Number two, it treats diabetes as a binary variable without regard to duration or severity, which are obviously relevant in terms of risk dose. Number three, it does not include family history because in general, including family history did not reclassify most patients. But clearly, family history is also not binary, and you can imagine that a stronger dose of family history, i.e. more family members affected at an earlier age, could be an important contributor to an individual's risk. This is probably also relevant for our patient given his personal family history. Number four, pooled cohort equations tend to overestimate risk in those with predicted risk above 10%, higher socioeconomic status, which may be relevant for our educated business owner, as well as those who are actively engaged in preventive care, which hopefully will be everybody. And lastly, number five, the pooled cord equations can underestimate risk in those of lower socioeconomic status and those of chronic inflammatory diseases, which is an important risk-enhancing factor. Ahmed, I totally agree. And reviewing these caveats really helps highlight some of the drawbacks to quantitative risk estimation. Let's also consider some specific patient groups, the young, the wise, and the races. Three examples to highlight this. The young, for those under 40 years old, a 10-year time horizon is relatively short. So estimating a 30-year or lifetime risk might be more meaningful for guiding management. Two, the wise, for those over 75 years of age, the pooled cohort equations may systematically overestimate risk in an otherwise healthy person because of age alone. And finally, three, the races. The pooled cohort equation race field options are either non-Hispanic, white, or African-American. Selecting the other category will overestimate risk of people with East Asian and Hispanic white descent and underestimate risk in the South Asian population, which is so relevant to many patients that we take care of, including our patient who is from India. That's a great review of the nuances of the pooled cohort equation specifically, but there are also pitfalls with risk models in general. First, no single individual actually has a 10% risk of an event. This just reflects a population averaged risk based on risk factor variables, often derived from a population that may not perfectly reflect your particular patient. This brings up the importance of personalization. Secondly, we're basing these risk models on historic cohorts, whereas our contemporary patients in today's clinics are exposed to a whole different environment, especially when it comes to newer and better therapies. This underscores the importance of updating models with time. Thirdly, we're estimating risk at a single time point without factoring in how long a patient was exposed to a particular risk factor or a clear understanding of how to use recalculation of risk over time after instituting targeted therapies. That's just not how these models were validated. 
Guys, those are a lot of caveats. The uncertainties of risk estimation only emphasizes the importance of a patient-centered approach and shared decision-making based on our patient's values. Counseling patients and making treatment decisions are clear in the extremes when the patient is estimated to have lower high risk. But what is your approach in the gray zones of borderline or intermediate risk? Great points, Heather. The uncertainties of predictive models are only less certain in these gray zones. This, my friends, is where we personalize risk estimation to our patient's unique self. Recall, there are four steps to risk stratification. We've already done step one by identifying major risk factors for qualitative risk approximation, and step two by using a prediction model to quantify risk. Let's keep going down this prevention train. Steps three and four are all about personalizing this approach. Step three is to identify risk-enhancing factors, and step four is to selectively measure the coronary artery calcium score in patients if you're still not sure. These additional steps are particularly helpful for those in the borderline or intermediate category. We're super excited to dive deeper into personalization with Dr. Ahmed Kara, the president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. So definitely stay tuned, folks. Let's put theory into practice. Consider a 45-year-old woman of South Asian descent with a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, lupus, preeclampsia, and two first-degree relatives with premature ASCVD. The pooled cord equation estimates her having a 10-year risk of 6.5%, which is borderline. Would you start a statin? If we only consider her quantified risk, the answer would be no. But she has several risk-enhancing factors which were introduced in the 2018 cholesterol guidelines. Let's review these unique risk-enhancing factors. Family history of premature ASCVD, LDL cholesterol greater than or equal to 160 or non-HDL greater than or equal to 190, CKD, metabolic syndrome, preeclampsia, and premature menopause, inflammatory diseases, South Asian ancestry, or certain biomarkers that include triglycerides, LP little a, high-sensitivity CRP, ApoB, and ankle brachial index. In general, the presence of risk-enhancing factors favors initiation of statin therapy in those with a borderline risk and intensification of statin therapy in those with an intermediate risk. Kareen, your hypothetical patient has several risk-enhancing factors, South Asian descent, chronic inflammatory disease from lupus, adverse pregnancy outcome, preeclampsia, and a family history of premature coronary artery disease. So even though the pooled cohort equation landed her in a borderline category, I would probably start a statin. Heather, that's perfect. That's exactly what I would do as well. This case really highlights the need to individualize your patient and not just plug in some numbers into a calculator and spit out a recommendation. And as for the prediction models, there are some important caveats here as well. We have little guidance about the relative weight of different risk-enhancing factors and the graded hazards of more severe risk-enhancing factors. In practice, we still tend to use them as a binary variable. Are they present or absent? Clearly, the reality must be more complicated, and I'm sure the guidelines will continue to get more sophisticated as more data trickles in. That's a great lead-in to step four. Considering all these pitfalls and gray zones, it's no wonder that after flawlessly applying steps one through three, the patient and doctor might still be left with uncertainties of how to proceed. But we could take advantage of the fact that most forms of atherosclerotic disease develops over time as subclinical, or aka the silent killer. 
Recall that atherosclerosis has quite a complex pathobiology with a long and indolent progressive phase before culminating in the first hard event in the form of a stroke, heart attack, or leg ischemia. We have other really great validated non-invasive tests that can scout out for subclinical atherosclerosis and push us towards a more aggressive preventative recommendation. So carotid interval thickness by vascular ultrasound and ankle brachial indices are great examples of this. But the one best test with the best data and advocated by the guidelines is measuring a patient's coronary artery calcium score, aka the CAC. Patients essentially undergo a dry chest CT and the extent of coronary calcification is quantified. Wait, pause. Do we, is it actually, people use the word CAC? It's not C-A-C or... Is that like something we they, made up? It just seems they, kind of weird to me. No? no. Uh, so at Hopkins, they use CAC. What do you use? I, 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 I don't think that people use CAC as much, but now they will after this episode. <laughs> we should be, we could probably say it out. It's a good point. I, it happens to be that in our vernacular, we use the word CAC a lot. It's just kind of a weird sounding word. No? What do you guys think? It sounds like <laughs> I, I, don't I know. also <laughs> think it is. I also think it is. I do. I really do. It happens to be used, but we could say coronary uh, calcification. Or, or uh, Wait, you want to say CAC? I could say CAC. We're going to be saying it like a hundred times. What is, I can say CAC. What is Dr. Blaha saying? I think he says CAC, but uh, says I can't. If he says CAC, we should say CAC because he's going to say that in his. He's going to say that in his episode. Wait, Heather. Uh, for the record, I totally agree with you. It's a weird sounding word, but they use it's a weird it. Weird word. It's like yeah. voice, you know. No, I, I agree. I was I wondering what we're going to do with this. We, we can't say coronary artery calcium every time. It's going to be too much. Yeah, too much. Um, CAC okay. scoring sounds sounds uh, just clunky. But it's a yeah, lot of it's a lot of, a lot of um, consonants. I think CAC score is universally <laughs> accepted. FYI, CAC is a very interesting sounding word, but we'll just use it for the sake of brevity going forward. Love it. Again, as Dan mentioned earlier, we're going to be doing a deep dive into CAC scoring with Dr. Michael Blaha, a true cardio nerds expert in the area. But for practical purposes, here's CAC scoring in six pearls. One, CAC scoring provides the greatest net reclassification benefit in those at intermediate 10-year risk. Two, CAC scoring is low yield in those at the low or high 10-year risk. CAC scoring may be useful for those at borderline 5 to 7.5% 10-year risk, especially in the presence of risk-enhancing factors, like our hypothetical patient. A CAC score of zero portends a low near-term future risk, and sedent therapy may be deferred. A CAC score greater than or equal to 100 or greater than or equal to the 75th percentile for age, sex, ethnicity indicates underlying atherosclerosis, substantial ASCVD risk, and favors statin initiation. And lastly, an intermediate CAC score of 1 to 99 or less than the 75th percentile conveys an intermediate risk and statin therapy should be considered, especially for young patients who have more time for progression of subclinical atherosclerosis. For the right patient, measuring a CAC score can really be super helpful. The risks are minimal. It generally is low cost and comes with low radiation. Over 10% have incidental findings, but usually these findings turn out to be benign. But let's keep going with the theme and cover some of the caveats with CAC scoring. Number one, CAC scores do not decrease with time, and so rechecking a CAC score after statin initiation is not recommended. Second, 
CAC very well can increase with time as atherosclerosis progresses. And so if statin therapy is deferred due to a zero CAC score, restratification after a period of time, like five years, is reasonable. Third, a CAC of zero should not be used to defer statins in high-risk conditions such as diabetes, smoking, and a family history of premature coronary artery disease, as our patient has. And finally, fourth, CAC scoring is validated for risk estimation in asymptomatic patients and should not be used to triage symptomatic presentations. To highlight the importance of this, just remember that CAC scoring is the amount of calcium associated or as part of the coronary arteries, but it doesn't tell you anything about the lumen of the coronary arteries. So the way I explain this to patients is if I have a coronary artery literally lying in front of me and I sprinkled on sugar like a donut, you know, like those uh, sugary donuts, and that's all over the artery, but it's kind of on the outside of the artery, that will come up as and let's say the sugary donut is calcium, that'll come up as high calcium on the calcium score. But I've actually not done anything to the lumen of the coronary artery. And so it doesn't tell me anything about the obstructive nature of that coronary artery. So calcium is really a marker of subclinical atherosclerosis rather than a marker of obstructive coronary artery disease. And that difference is nuanced, but very important to make. But I will say the caveat is sometimes a patient will be referred to me with a ridiculously high coronary calcium that was done as screening, but they're totally asymptomatic. And the next steps to handle that could be a little bit nuanced and complicated. And we'll save that for our discussion with Dr. Blaha. That was a great point, Dan. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, I got to give you a disclaimer that the cardioners by no means advocate sugary donuts, especially as part of our preventive series. In summary, the selective use of CAC scoring can be a very powerful tool. Imagine a 38-year-old with a strong family history of early coronary artery disease and a healthy, vibrant 78-year-old with no medical history or medical problems whatsoever. The CAC score may be really helpful to upclassify risk for the 38-year-old or downclassify risk in the 78-year-old because steps one through three may have failed them both. There are risk estimation tools which incorporate both traditional risk factors and a CAC score to quantify 10-year risk, like the MESA score or the AstroCharm score. I love it. CAC scoring, which sounds like a really weird word, does sound super helpful in the right context. In my clinic, I get a CAC score when I'm still not sure what to do after steps one to three of risk stratification, generally when the patient is in the gray zone of estimated 10-year risk of 5 to 20%. CAC scores have helped me counsel patients while reinforcing the importance of preventative measures like lifestyle and medications. A picture is really worth a thousand words. That's absolutely right. And beyond risk stratification, a non-zero CAC image can be very motivating. With that, let's get back to our patient. The year is now 2015. Future President Trump announces his bid for presidency. China builds several islands in the disputed South China Sea. And the Black Lives Matter movement, founded in 2013, is reborn with the tragically fatal shootings of Walter Scott and Freddie Gray, revealing the fragile fractures and the foundations of our society. It was also this year that K.A. is seen in clinic for polyuria, polydipsia, and blurry vision. Blood pressure in the clinic is 152 over 102, his weight is 166 pounds with a BMI of 29. Labs reveal an HbA1c of 11.1, and his urinalysis is positive for microalbuminuria, 
This brings us back to step one of risk stratification, where we identify major risk factors for qualitative risk approximation as a bedrock for patient counseling and education. Your patient is now presenting with classic symptoms of overt diabetes, stage two hypertension, and obesity. Like atherosclerosis, the onset of major risk factors is also often indolent over time, highlighting the importance of screening. Ideally, we diagnose these in early asymptomatic stages to get a head start on management and risk modification. The longer a patient has poorly controlled diabetes and hypertension, the worse their outlook. Now that he has diabetes, we can get off of the risk stratification train. Remember, we do not use the pooled cohort equation to quantify risk if patients have established ASCVD, diabetes, or an LDL greater than 190. Since he has diabetes, we already know that he warrants at least a moderate intensity statin. Patients with diabetes and important risk enhancers should be on a high intensity statin. Risk enhancers in diabetics include greater than 10 years duration of type 2 diabetes and greater than 20 years duration of type 1 diabetes, greater than or equal to 30 micrograms albumin per milligram creatinine, an EGFR less than 60, retinopathy, neuropathy, ABI less than 0.9. In those with multiple ASCVD risk factors like in our patient, we should start a high-intensity statin with the goal of lowering LDLC by at least 50%. In addition to starting a high-intensity statin, we need to aggressively manage his modifiable risk factors, in his case, diabetes and hypertension, both of which are potent risk factors for ASCVD. Just to underline this very important point, a 20 millimeter mercury higher SVP and 10 millimeter mercury higher diastolic blood pressure were each associated with a doubling in the risk of death from stroke, heart disease, or other vascular disease. For our patient with an A1C of greater than 11% and stage 2 hypertension, we really need to jump in on this double stat. Thankfully, in just a few episodes away, we'll be joined by CardioNerds experts, Dr. Dennis Brumer, who is double boarded in endocrinology and cardiology to really dive deep into diabetes, and Dr. Luke Laffin, a preventive cardiologist with a focus on hypertension, to further expand our knowledge in this area. So stay tuned. Okay, so we would definitely start a statin at this point and double down on managing his diabetes and his hypertension. But what about aspirin for primary prophylaxis before the disease has developed? After the publication of numerous large trials in 2018, we saw a paradigm shift away from primary prophylaxis aspirin. The ARRIVE trials sought to test aspirin in those with 10-year ASCVD risk of 10 to 20%, but the actual risk was lower at about 8%. In these patients, there was no benefit but a twofold increase in gastrointestinal bleeding. The ASCEND trial studied aspirin use in patients with diabetes and found a modest benefit counterbalanced by modest harm. You would need to treat 59 patients over 10 years to prevent one adverse cardiovascular event, but at the same time, one in 77 patients would be harmed by a major bleed. The ASPRI trial studied aspirin use in the elderly over 70 years old. It was stopped early due to futility given no difference in MACE outcomes, but a significant increase in bleeding with a number needed to harm of 42 over 10 years. These trials really blunted enthusiasm for aspirin use in a primary prevention population. But are there patients who still may benefit? Great points, Heather, and really a phenomenal recap of the trials. One of the main reasons these trials fail to show meaningful benefit is probably, and hopefully, that the contemporary population is just different from the days of yore. 
with better background medical management and greater public awareness of healthy lifestyles. Consistent with this, the event rates were lower than predicted in these trials. But look, none of them truly specifically studied a population with a high predicted 10-year risk. That was the goal of the ARRIVE trial, but the enrolled population ended up having a lower predicted risk. Primary preventive aspirin definitely has less of a role today than it did in 2017. But until we have more data, there are certain patients who may very well benefit. Here are some helpful guidelines. One, low-dose aspirin might be considered in those with a high ASCVD risk or those with borderline or intermediate risk, but with important risk-enhancing factors, importantly, who are not at an increased risk for bleeding. Two, low-dose aspirin should not be administered on a routine basis for primary prevention of ASCVD among adults over 70 years of age. Three, low-dose aspirin should not be administered for primary prevention among adults of any age who are at an increased risk for bleeding. And finally, finding subclinical atherosclerosis by CAC scoring may help identify suitable patients for primary prevention aspirin. Remember the two foundational principles of preventative management. The first is to promote a healthy lifestyle for everyone, regardless of their risk. And second is to escalate our targeted preventative management with increasing risk. Promoting a healthy lifestyle is as important now as it was back in 2004. Diet, exercise, and weight loss are particularly helpful for combating diabetes and hypertension. The DASH sodium study showed the additive efficacy of both DASH diet and salt restriction on improving blood pressure. Importantly, the higher blood pressure, the more the efficacy. And the Mediterranean diet showed improved MACE outcomes in the PREDIMED study with modest improvements in blood pressure. There is also a meta-analysis level data for the antihypertensive effects of plant-based diets. Whichever the diet, higher potassium intake is helpful. And when it comes to weight loss, individuals with obesity should be recommended a comprehensive lifestyle program that focuses on low calorie intake, either decreased by 500 calories or a 800 to 1500 calorie per day diet, as well as high levels of physical activity, two to 300 minutes per week. For most of us, setting realistic goals is incredibly important. If we expect them to reach for the stars and they fall short, it can be very demoralizing. Rather, what I found to be incredibly motivating is that just a 5% weight loss can make a world of difference with improvements in blood pressure, LDL cholesterol, triglycerides, and glucose levels, as well as delaying the development of type 2 diabetes mellitus. So giving them this sort of realistic goal can be very practical for some patients and it's easier to swallow. This is particularly important for a patient whose BMI is 29, categorizing him as overweight, just shy of obesity. The 2013 AHA-ACC obesity guidelines recommended any of the 15 evidence-based diets with reduced calorie intake for a total calorie deficit. They also recommended referral to a registered dietitian. A team approach is a must here. Generally, we should recommend that patients reduce diets that are high in sugar and other simple carbohydrates, refined grains, trans fat, saturated fat, sodium, red meat, especially processed meat, while at the same time encouraging an evidence-based diet like a Mediterranean-type diet, high in vegetables, fruits, nuts, whole grains, vegetables, or lean animal proteins like fish, and vegetable fiber. Portion control, regardless of a particular diet, is important too, to manage total caloric intake. Also, physical activity is a potent anti-atherosclerotic. There's a strong inverse relationship between time spent doing moderate to vigorous physical activity and incidence of ASCVD outcomes and mortality. Despite this, about 50% of U.S. adults do not engage in even the minimum recommendations, 
We need to encourage our patients to engage in at least 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise or 75 minutes a week of vigorous intensity physical activity, including resistance exercise. There is no substitute to diet and exercise for a healthy lifestyle and losing weight. But not uncommonly, we meet patients who continue to live with unhealthy weight despite their best efforts. These are opportunities to re-engage in motivational interviewing, identifying hurdles like access-related issues, education, and even looking for secondary causes. But after going through this checklist, we may still need to activate adjunctive measures like pharmacotherapy or metabolic surgery. Those tools are probably very underutilized. Pharmacotherapy for weight loss should be considered for BMI greater than or equal to 30 or greater than or equal to 27 with comorbid conditions. Referral for metabolic surgery should be considered for BMI greater than or equal to 40 or greater than or equal to 35 with comorbidity. Stay tuned for a pulse check to learn more about the approach to obesity with my mentor, Dr. Chiadi Ndumale. With our patient's A1C and stage 2 hypertension, he will also need pharmacotherapy for his diabetes and hypertension in addition to lifestyle measures. Really looking forward to our upcoming diabetes and hypertension episodes to dive deeper into these topics. All right, guys, let's get back to our patient, KA. After losing 30 pounds, his A1C drops to 5.6 on metformin alone, and blood pressure is well controlled on single agent therapy with just losartan. Now, let's forward to the year 2018. A record number of women are elected into public office, including the first Muslim and first Native American women to join Congress. Brett Kavanaugh joins the Supreme Court. And Toys R Us liquidates its U.S. stores. Oh, my God, guys. No. Oh. <laughs> yeah. When Toys R Us was liquidated, myself and my millennial comrades really mourned a loss. Oh my God, Dan, don't even get me started. The thought that my children will not know the joys of walking into a Toys R Us. Tragedy. It just saddens me so much. Totally. But you know, this was also a significant year for our patient. In 2018, you see KA in the ED. He's had three days of epigastric burning discomfort radiating to the right arm. On that day, he's had unremitting symptoms since 3 a.m. EKG reveals sinus bradycardia and an infraposterior STEMI pattern. He's taken for emergent coronary angiogram, which shows severe triple vessel disease involving the mid-LED, OM1, and mid-RCA. He undergoes successful PCI to the RCA and OM1 emergently during the index procedure, as well as a staged intervention to the LED. Echo shows preserved biventricular function with inferior wall motion abnormalities. Thankfully, he's doing quite well clinically and is discharged on dual antiplatelet therapy, high-intensity statin, valsartan, carvedilol, metformin, as well as plans to begin cardiac rehab. Ah, I'm so happy that he did well. Our patient's history really shows us that risk factors are real, but they can remain quiescent in the background, simmering underneath the surface until it's too late because patients with risk factors generally feel fine in the moment and problems don't come until years later, it can be really hard to motivate our patients and ourselves to improve lifestyle and manage modifiable risk factors to reduce future risk. Thankfully, our patient did absolutely everything he could with impressive weight loss and controlling his hypertension and diabetes. Like any other time in his life, the two foundational principles are as true as ever. We need to keep promoting a healthy lifestyle. 
cardiac rehab will be a key part of his exercise plan moving forward. In addition, we need to pay special attention to his emotional well-being. A heart attack is a major event with important implications on self-perception of vitality and mortality. Couldn't agree more. And the second principle tells us to escalate target preventative measures with increasing risk. Now that we know he has established ASCVD, in addition to lifestyle, he will need antiplatelet therapy, high-intensity statin, and possible non-statin adjuncts to get his LDL to a goal of less than 70, in addition to aggressive control of his diabetes and hypertension. No prevention series is complete without a super deep dive into the greasy world of lipids, and we'll get to that with Dr. Nishan Shah and Dr. Anne-Marie Navarre, our colleagues at Duke Medical Center. It is now the year 2020. The world is ravaged by the COVID-19 pandemic. The cardionerds win the hearts of a global audience. The death of George Floyd reawakens the Black Lives Matter movement with international protests. In June of this year, I personally spent time in the Cleveland Clinic Nuclear Lab or as we call it, the hot lab, to become a nuclear authorized user as a stepping stone to becoming nuclear warden. It is here that I met our beloved patient, K.A., a.k.a. Kanak Amin. Kanak is the manager of the nuclear lab who, for the following month, taught me everything I need to know about radioisotopes, nuclear decay, handling nuclear waste, mixing technetium for nuclear scans, and everything else I need to become a verified authorized user. But anyone who spent five minutes with him knows that he is so much more than that. Joking around with him in the lab, enjoying his stories over coffee, and taking field trips throughout the hospitals and other parts, I grew to admire and adore Kanak. As he taught me about finance, politics, and life in general, he also shared his journey as a patient. As I learned more about him, I became so inspired by his commitment to a healthy lifestyle that I just knew we had to get him a broader audience on the Cardinals platform so that everyone can enjoy learning from his story, the same way I did every day of the past month. One day, a colleague brought wafers into the lounge and Kanak took one look at the nutritional facts and put that container down without any hesitation. Kanak, of course, gave us consent to share the details of his story with you. So to Kanak Amin and all the patients who brought us here, we cardiners thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Your stories make our hearts flutter. That was wonderful, Amit. Kanak really sounds like an incredible person, and I'm really excited to hear his perspective in a separate episode. For our audience, let's review the PMI, or Points of Maximal Impulse, for ASCVD prevention. Just follow our CardioNerds 2 plus 4 paradigm. The two foundational principles of prevention are, 1. Promote a healthy lifestyle regardless of risk. 2. Escalate preventive therapy with increasing predicted risk. You therefore need to predict future risk. The four steps of risk stratification are, one, qualitative risk approximation for identifying risk factors, two, quantitative risk estimation using a validated model that fits your patient population, three, factor in risk-enhancing factors if the patient remains in a gray zone after steps one and two, and fourth, selectively measure coronary artery calcium scores or CAC score if the path forward still remains unclear. Remember, patient education, counseling, and shared decision-making is absolutely essential for every step of the way. Hi, I'm the patient, Kanak Amin, uh, that you just heard about on the podcast. I just want to take this opportunity to thank uh, my physicians, Dr. Jaber and uh, all the fellows, also Dr. Ellis and Jonathan White, who did the stenting for me, and uh, all my fellows uh, that they are here. You know, I, I could go through all the names, 
but I might forget someone, so they might get upset. So I'm going to say uh, all the fellows who are here at the Cleveland Clinic, I love them. They're great people. And also the Twinsburg team, the emergency team, they did a good job of uh, flight taking me over here or heloing me down to the main campus. So I really want to thank everyone for taking such good care of me. Thank <laughs> you.